0: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, are advertising agency giants
1: doomed? They definitely need to change what they are. And I think that's actually the long-term future for the advertising giants, is they'll be very different companies in a decade
0: and the economics of vibranium in Marvel's Black Panther movie.
1: What's interesting
2: about Wakanda is that it's not only the mining of the resource that it dominates, it's every application of the resource as well.
0: First, the Americans claim that the Chinese are stealing America's intellectual property. Mr Trump seems to have presented the Chinese with a choice. Either they negotiate a deal, or he hits them with tariffs. Any deal would involve correcting what he sees as a big problem – the trade balance between America and China. A lot more flows from China to America than the other way
1: around. But we have a trade deficit, depending on the way you calculate, of $504 billion. Now, some people would say it's really $375 billion. Many different ways of looking at it, but any way you look at it, it is the largest deficit of any country In the history
0: of our world, it's out of control. Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, is here with me. Samaya, what do we know about what Mr. Trump is planning? Last week, Mr. Trump
3: announced these three punitive measures that he plans to hit China with. So the first is actually fairly sensible, dull. He's essentially taking China to the World Trade Organization and accusing them of breaking the rules. So on March 23rd, An official dispute was launched and they are accusing China of breaking the rules on intellectual property licensing. The other two attacks could arrive a bit sooner and are a bit punchier. First of all, he is threatening investment restrictions. It's not clear what form they might take. Uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has, I think, 60 days to come up with some kind of plan. And then the final one, which has been getting the most attention, is, of course, the threat of tariffs. So Mr. Lighthizer has taken the inspiration for this list of tariffs from China's made in 2025 strategy, which is its industrial policy to make China a world leader in certain strategic sectors by that date. Does all of this add up to some sort of coherent strategy? It's difficult to tell. So Robert Lighthizer is the United States Trade Representative. He's really this project's mastermind, and he's been keeping his cards fairly close to his chest. So when this plan was announced, it wasn't completely clear what was going on alongside it. Mr. Trump said that there was a negotiation, but he suggested that the tariffs and the investment restrictions might come before, perhaps to increase American leverage in any kind of bargain. But now it looks like maybe some agreement will be reached before these punitive tariffs have to go in place. Then I think the the answer to whether this adds up to a coherent strategy depends on what you think the objectives of the Trump administration are. Let's suppose that the objective is to get a wholesale change in China's economic practices. That looks like it might be quite difficult to achieve. And, you know, the Americans couldn't be blamed if they didn't achieve that in some kind of bargain. Supposing that they just want China to change its ways in terms of technology licensing, then perhaps they could get something. Um, Apparently, one of the demands they're making is for the Chinese to lower their subsidies for state-owned enterprises. They also want lower tariffs on Chinese cars, a more open financial sector. The biggest problem, I think, comes with this objective of a lower bilateral trade deficit. The risk is that there isn't a huge connection between the kinds of policies that might end up in this big deal and what the bilateral trade deficit actually does. It's very difficult for the Chinese to promise a $100 billion reduction in their bilateral trade deficit through these other things. Lower tariffs on cars or a more open financial sector won't necessarily have that effect. And also given that the Trump administration has just unleashed a huge fiscal stimulus onto the American economy, that itself could blow up the the trade deficit, which would undermine any supposed wins from this big deal. So what are the big risks of all of this? There are two risks. The first is that this all goes sour, the deal falls apart, and essentially, The Chinese respond with retaliatory tariffs, perhaps anti-dumping duties on soybeans. And then the Americans themselves hit back with tariffs and you could get a descent into a tit-for-tat trade war. The other risk is to the health of the multilateral rules-based system. Essentially, what America is doing is it's saying, we don't like your behavior and we are going to go after you unilaterally and get you to change your ways. And if you don't, then we want these other concessions. That's not supposed to be how the global trading order works. You're supposed to have multilaterally negotiated rules that are then enforced according to processes that everyone has agreed on. America is essentially taking the system in its hands and and the question is whether it can
0: survive that kind of assault. Samaya Keynes, thank you. Thank you. Next. What impact is the rise of digital advertising having on the more traditional ad agencies? There are lots of questions swirling about about whether the advertising agency giants are doomed. Gaddy Epstein is our media editor, and he joins us on the line from New York. Gaddy, why are the advertising agency giants thought to be in trouble?
1: Well, because they're reporting pretty poor results. Uh, In particular, WPP, led by Sir Martin Sorrell, has had a really bad 2017. Uh, Their uh, revenue growth has essentially stalled they are projecting slower growth in the years ahead. And all of the advertising giants have been growing more slowly um, uh, this decade when they should be expected, based on the strong global recovery, to be doing better. So there are a few reasons why this is happening. One is the rise of Google and Facebook and the ability to advertise on them directly. So you know, online advertising has grown tremendously this decade. But meanwhile, uh, traditional forms of advertising, the ones that the agencies have dominated, like television, have stalled or even, uh, in some cases, uh, shrunk. So you have a problem there. And then you have Amazon pricing effect that's affecting their best clients, like P&G, like Unilever, who have responded by constraining their advertising spend, uh, at least in the short term. And then you have uh, the rise of advertising-free options for consumers like Uh, you know, Netflix, subscription video, voice-activated search like Alexa, or voice-activated entertainment. Uh, These things are challenges for advertisers, and they're challenges for the agencies.
0: So are they doomed?
1: Well, I think there is a silver lining to most of these things I just talked about. For instance, on Google and Facebook, a decent chunk of that advertising actually still flows through the agencies who have all Uh, worked hard to establish relationships with Google and Facebook. So they still book uh, a fair amount of money uh, in Google and Facebook advertising. A lot of advertising on Google and Facebook is kind of long tail companies that probably wouldn't go through agencies. So there's Perhaps not as much disintermediation going on there as people suspect. Whether that's going to be true long run is uh, is really another question, so that, that's something that still looms as a challenge for them. On the Amazon effect, that's a real challenge that has constrained the margins of their best clients and will continue to do so. The question is whether they'll respond differently in the years ahead. Will they think brands need to be more important and invest more in branding? That would be to the good of the agencies if that if that turnaround happens. It has not yet. And then lastly, ad-supported options may make a comeback. You know, not everybody can afford uh, seven different subscriptions. And so ad-supported video might be something that we see a a bit of a resurgence in. That's a possibility as well. And then I would say on top of all that, the quality of advertising has got to get better. I mean, people think that a lot of the ads they see online are junk. That's an area where uh, the agencies could say that they can add value.
0: What will the impact of the Cambridge Analytica Facebook story be on advertising agencies, Gaddy?
1: The recent Cambridge Analytica mess for Facebook, the questions about uh, advertising showing up next to inappropriate videos on YouTube, these are uh, opportunities for the agencies to show that, look, these are big platforms that, yes, are useful, but there are risks associated with using them. Uh, you have to work with them smartly and you have to have uh, strong advertising kind of messages to convey Uh, It's not just about targeting.
0: And will all of that be enough to secure their future?
1: Uh, I think the answer to that is no. Uh, They definitely need to to change what they are. Uh, And I think that's actually the long-term future for the advertising giants is they'll be very different companies in a decade. Some of their best competition right now or the growing competition is coming from digital consultancies like Accenture and Deloitte. And they go in uh, at different levels of the companies than the marketing level. They can go in straight to the CEO and tell them, you shouldn't be spending your money on advertising. This is a different world. You need to make your digital uh, interactions with your customers better. These are things that the advertising giant holding companies are uh, moving into that space. They already have moved into that space by buying companies. I think they'll continue to do that. And by, by hiring the best people from some of these companies. They've already started doing that, and they'll do more of that. And I think you'll see in 5 to 10 years that the percentage of their revenues that comes from those kinds of activities, which aren't traditional ad agency activities, will rise dramatically. And that is how they will survive, by transforming.
0: So a glimpse into the future of madmen. Thanks, Gaddy. Thank you. But what about you, the consumer or client? What do you think about the changes in the ad world with the tit-for-tat over trade? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally,
1: Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda?
0: Wakanda is the fictional African nation in Marvel's latest superhero film, Black Panther. The film is a box office hit, having already made $630 million in America alone. Wakandans use a mineral called vibranium... They use it to develop advanced technology and to isolate themselves from the rest of the world by posing as a third-world country. But could that mineral be Wakanda's downfall?
1: I'm the only one who's seen it and made it down to life.
0: Simon Cox, our emerging markets editor, is on the line from Hong Kong. Simon, when you watched the film as an economist, what struck you as the most fantastical element?
2: The opening scene, it starts off by saying that uh, Wakanda... isolated from international trade uh, and yet it's a land of great uh, prosperity and technological sophistication and uh, it seems to have developed all this technology entirely indigenously uh, as a result of this natural resource deposit of of vibranium. Now it's perfectly possible for countries to get rich on the basis of natural resources in in fact in many ways it's nice to see a film that doesn't fall for the idea of a resource curse uh, which is much less prevalent than many people think. So the idea that a country um, would uh, prosper as a result of natural resources is not fantastical at all. Uh, The idea it would do so in a state of absolute autarky, though, uh, does strike me as uh, particularly uh, fantastical, even in a movie where all sorts of weird and wonderful things happen.
0: So you mentioned resource curse. Can you explain that?
2: Yes, so the resource curse is a a general uh, observation that countries that should be rich, because they're blessed with large deposits of natural resources, tend not to be. More precisely stated, it's the argument that they tend to grow more slowly than other countries. Uh, and this was an idea that was uh, given statistical support several decades ago by uh, Jeffrey Sachs and Andrew Warner. But a lot of subsequent researchers uh, questioned uh, their methodology and questioned their main findings.
0: We actually christened it the Dutch disease, didn't we, I think in the
2: 1970s? So that's one mechanism by which a resource curse could operate. Uh, and It's named after uh, what happened in the Netherlands when they discovered gas. And as a result of this, the Dutch currency appreciated. And that made other sectors of the economy uh, less competitive, uh, principally manufacturing. But whether the Netherlands as a whole was worse off is is a much harder argument to make. Uh, In many ways, uh, you want the currency to strengthen because it directs resources inwards towards this fantastical resource that you want to develop. Um, So it certainly hurts certain sectors of the economy. But it's not necessarily an inefficient response to uh, the discovery of natural resources.
0: And Wakanda, as you said, doesn't trade at all. It's just completely shut off from the rest of the world. So they're not going to have any issues with their currency appreciating or depreciating, are they?
2: <laughs> no, they're not. The one way to escape Dutch disease is to uh, ban exports altogether. It's interesting to try and look for the right uh, economic analogy for vibranium. And Many people point to resources like cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or perhaps more optimistically, uh, diamonds in Botswana, what's interesting about Wakanda is that it's not only the mining of the resource that it dominates, it's every application of the resource as well. So it'd be a bit like uh, if the only people wearing diamond necklaces in the world were people in Botswana, or the only people who used uh, diamond drills were in Botswana, or, or A bigger leap. Imagine if the entire petrochemical and plastics industry existed in Saudi Arabia and only in Saudi Arabia. That gets you closer to this mythical world that uh, the movie has created.
0: It's clear from the film that vibranium is the basis of absolutely everything in Wakanda. Is that wise for a country that's been blessed in this way?
2: So many countries with natural resources quite naturally want to move downstream, they want to become successful uh, in other downstream, more processed, more refined products that use their natural resource. Um, But actually, as a development strategy, that's not proven very successful. Um, Often, it's better to look for industries that belong to completely different value chains that might require rather similar mixes of labor and capital and know-how. Just because you you make diamonds doesn't mean you're necessarily good at polishing them. It may be that the best place to polish diamonds is coastal India, not landlocked Botswana. Just because you're close to a silicon deposit doesn't mean you'll be good at software engineering. So it's uh, a bit of a um, a misleading uh, economic strategy to uh, seek to move downstream from uh, the natural blessings that a country might have.
0: So the lesson from economists for Wakanda, diversify out of vibranium. Thank you, Simon Cox, our superhero editor. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in this show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.